We're here with Deacon Lisa Schwant, who is the Dean of the College of Deacons, as well as the Canon for Discipleship in the Anglican Diocese of the Western Gulf Coast. Deacon Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for inviting me to be here with you. Yeah. So, you have two different titles. Tell us what they mean, if you would. So, I'll start with the first one, Dean of the College of Deacons. I've had that title longer than the other. Um, uh, as a deacon in our diocese, the bishop asked me to serve as dean, which means that I help to shepherd and encourage the deacons in our diocese. And I'm also involved in our ordination process and path, especially for those who are discerning diaconal ministry. Connected to that, which is probably helpful to know, um, we have a dean of the College of Presbyters and a dean of the College of Laity, and our bishop, who is a bishop in his own college, um, has seen the effectiveness of uh, encouraging all orders of ministry in the diocese, and this is one of the ways that he proactively does that. With deans over each. That's correct. Right, right. Canon for discipleship. So um, our bishop is uh, passionate about um, encouraging our churches to be uh, families who encourage nurture a culture in which disciples are growing in their own discipleship, but they are also disciples who are learning how to make other disciples. And so one of the ways that he has lived into that passion is um, to ask me to serve as canon for discipleship. And so I work with him, representing him out in the diocese, to um, meet with different parishes, serve as a resource, uh, a way to connect our parishes, um, find out what ways are, are working, what things are not working, um, how are we doing in the area of nurturing cultures where we have disciples who are making other disciples. So we do that in a myriad of ways, and maybe we can have another podcast to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, in, in your words, what is a deacon? Oh, well, that's such an easy question. Such an easy be. question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we look at the um, historic diaconate. It's going back to Acts 6, when you had the apostles who were uh, teaching, um, being messengers of the gospel, um, and leading the church. And as the church grew, the needs of the people increased, and they could not tend to all the needs. And so we know they appointed the seven, laid hands upon them, and that's where we believe the diaconate began. So our understanding of the diaconate is um, some people incorrectly look at it as a stepping stone to the presbyterate, and it's actually a separate order unto itself um, in which those who are called to be deacons are called to an assisting leadership role. Um, and we lead in pretty specific ways. We are, um, we're called to catechize and instruct both the young and the old. This is from our Book of Common Prayer in our ordinal. Um, we're called to assist in worship. We're called to um, 
uh, equip the household of God to meet the needs around them. Um, We're also called to interpret the needs of the world to the church. And so one of the best ways I know to describe the diaconate is that we are the bridge. And we're the bridge in really three ways. We're the bridge between the church and the world. We're the bridge between the church and the people as far as leadership. And then we also serve as an interesting bridge, not a, not a wall, but a bridge. Think about what a bridge does. So um, a deacon understands that his or her role is to uh, serve in whatever ways he or she can to ensure that the senior pastor uh, is able to be as effective in his ministry as he possibly can be. Um, So we're a bridge to him um, in ways that help to serve him to be as effective as he can be, and then we're a bridge to both the church and the people that we serve, that they might be as effective in ministry as they can be, and then to the world that their needs are met. So, Yeah, that's great. Um, it, it may bring it into to greater clarity if you're able to share. How would you articulate the role of the presbyterate or the, the priesthood or a yes. priest within a local church? Um, and, and how does that interplay? That's a, that's a great question. Um, a presbyter is someone who is called to uh, shepherd the flock of God. The presbyter or the rector or senior pastor um, serves in place of the bishop. The bishop would be, I would say, the chief under-shepherd, Jesus being the, the shepherd. Um, and then a presbyter would be than an under-shepherd directly under the authority of the bishop. Um, and that's those are different. That's a very different calling. Um, presbyter is called to watch, protect, and to keep the flock safe, um, to banish all erroneous doctrine, um, to teach and to feed uh, the flock, to go and look for the sheep who are lost, it's a um, it's a it's a very intentional shepherding responsibility. So um, that is why presbyters are those who, if in in our congregations, a presbyter leads a congregation as the the shepherd of that family. And we're we're using in the world we're coming out of. That's a pastor. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so more personally, what what's your story? Were you were you born and raised Anglican, or did you come into Anglicanism through some other means? How I, I was actually born and raised in the Episcopal Church. Um, I grew up uh, actually even going to an Episcopal girls' school, so um, my life was formed by the Episcopal Church. I loved the Episcopal Church. Um, my husband and I, when we got married, we helped to plant an Episcopal church in Corpus Christi. Then we moved here to the Woodlands, and we quickly joined the Episcopal church that was here. And um, at some point along the way, uh, Bishop Clark, but he was Father Clark Lowenfield at that time, came and led that Episcopal church. And um, 
we had begun to see several years earlier um, just a real stepping away from Scripture as authoritative uh, within the Episcopal within the Episcopal Church. Um, little decisions that ended up having large consequences. Um, but we always felt safe because we were serving um, under a rector or a senior pastor who was Orthodox and biblical. And our bishop at the time was Orthodox and biblical. And then around um, the end of, I would say, 1999, beginning of 2000, our bishop began exhibiting um, just a different idea of ministry and the connection of scripture to authority in the church. And it was summer of 2000 and, um, Bishop Clark, then father Clark was actually on sabbatical and our Bishop was at a national meeting of the Episcopal church. And he, um, ended up voting for something that was very contrary to scripture. And so, um, Bishop Clark, he was out of town, but he communicated with his bishop. I just need to understand why you um, would vote this way. You've never, you've never voted contrary to Scripture before. And that began a journey for us all, including Bishop Clark, um, that ultimately landed us where we've landed. Um, but over the course of the next several months, our bishop came and addressed the Episcopal Church that we were part of, and when we would ask him questions, he would say things like, well, the church wrote the scriptures, and the church is now in the process of rewriting the scriptures, um, which took our breath away. And he said that not once, but he said it several times. Um, when we would ask him questions regarding uh, the, what he had voted for that summer was something that said that it was that the church was okay with non-married people living together in a sexual relationship as long as they were monogamous. So when we began to ask him questions about why would he vote that way, he said that he himself didn't believe that to be true, but he felt like he needed to show the other side, the revisionist, that he was willing to meet them halfway in a compromise. Apparently that was a compromise. So then all sorts of questions about our children's ministry. How are we to teach our children if our own bishop is saying that this is okay and endorsed by the church? How are we to instruct our young people who were getting married? Um, premarital counseling, it, it, the ripple effect was great. And we began to realize um, that we could not remain under his authority. Um, so Bishop Clark, then Father Clark at the time, um, he uh, also came to the same conclusion. He has a little bit different story. But those of us who stayed here in the woodlands, we suddenly had no church home. We were no longer part of the Episcopal Church. Um, the entire vestry or parish council resigned because they could no longer stay under that bishop. And so we... We felt orphaned. We, we felt sure. abandoned. Our church had abandoned us. And um, for the next several months, we, uh, a group of us, 
gathered weekly and studied the scriptures together and prayed. And we were specifically asking the Lord, are we called to be part of another church in the Woodlands area, or are we called to start a new work? Now at the time, and still today, there are a number of strong Christ-honoring churches in the Woodlands. And so on Sunday mornings, we as a group, and there were about, I'd say about 30 of us, we would go and worship every Sunday together at a church in the Woodlands, a church that we had already had a relationship with because Bishop Clark had, um, in his kingdom-mindedness, had uh, helped us all understand that we're one big church in the Woodlands. So um, these were churches and senior pastors that uh, were praying for us and um, supporting us in our own journey. So we'd go Sunday mornings and we'd worship together. And then we'd meet sometime during the week and we'd share kind of our own thoughts of what did we felt, what did we felt maybe the Spirit had said in the midst of that time of worship together. And the answers were similar every week. Um, Man, that message, that teaching, it was strong. Um, Or I could really sense the Spirit there. Um, Or, man, worship was so powerful. But what we found was it was usually just one or two things that were strong, and what we really missed was a table-centered approach to worship. So we would get bits and pieces, but we never got the whole thing as we knew it coming from an Anglican background. So for better or for worse, a group of lay people who had no idea what they were doing planted what is now Hope Point. Um, We made every mistake you could make. We Seriously, it is the Lord's faithfulness alone that Hope Point um, is the family of God that it is today. So that there's a lot more along the way, but sure. that's, yeah. But you were, <clears throat> you were born and raised within this tradition. You clearly went through a pretty tumultuous season within this tradition. What ultimately kept you in this tradition? Mm. Um, I remember, uh, those early years, the, uh, the grief, um, just the grief of, of, of leaving a church that, that we all loved. But one of the ways the Lord um, ministered to us was we had a, an understanding, probably for the first time for most of us, that we were part of a global church. And um, when, when we had no safe home or safe harbor here, it was churches in the global south that that offered us um, safe harbor, uh, spiritual covering, um, leadership. Actually, it, at great sacrifice to them, um, many of these churches, Rwanda being the one that we came under, um, the Episcopal Church had uh, just funded various things in the Church of Rwanda. And when Rwanda took us in, the Episcopal Church cut their financial support of the Church of Rwanda. And yet the Church of Rwanda um, 
continued to love and support and lead and guide us. And so when I was ordained a deacon, we were still part of the Church of Rwanda. So my ordination papers um, show that I was ordained a deacon of Rwanda. And so, and that was shortly after. Had you been to Rwanda? No, time? not until I went this for the very first time to GAFCON was the first time I've actually been in Rwanda just this last spring. But um, they had, it was, you know, the genocide was in 1994. And so this was in the mid, you know, early to mid 2000s that we are in relationship with our Wandan brothers and sisters. And when those bishops and when the archbishop would come over to the United States and love on us, but also teach us, um, those initial years were marked um, by us feeling loved and encouraged, but also the Holy Spirit convicting us of our Western arrogance and convicting us of our Western idolatry of the institution and through the, um, the leadership of those Global South Anglicans, um, there was a lot of humbling that went on. And we walked in repentance in a way that we had never walked before. Um, and so as we continue along in, in our life now, um, I'm very mindful. One of my constant prayers to the Lord is, let us not forget what it means to be a people of repentance because I think that is so much about who we are now as the Anglican Church. So it was but that global care and being rescued by the Lord, but through African Christians was very humbling. We would often say that, you know, it was the West that took the Bible into the global South, into Africa, and then... It was Africa who brought the Bible back to us. And Africa who took the Bible to Britain in the first place. Exactly, exactly. It's a wonderful story. So what does it mean to you to be Anglican? These questions, you're there. There's some really good ones. <laughs> um, having been through that season where we were asking the Lord was it okay not to be Anglican? Um, I think a lot of it is just for me personally in a mysterious way, something that I can't exactly explain. Um, but I do appreciate and feel um, that God has made us to be holistic beings. And so our minds, our bodies, our souls, our spirits are um, not compartmentalized, that they are intertwined in a very holistic way. Um, and I have found the way we approach life as Anglican Christians um, tends to be more holistic. Um, we just even take our, our worship as an example. And I'm not limiting this to simply worship, but this is a great way to, to explain it. Um, we are physical beings, and so as we interact and worship uh, as Anglicans, we are encouraged to uh, experiment and to use different postures of our body to signify what is happening internally, spiritually. So whether we're kneeling, whether we're crossing ourselves, whether we're raising our arms, 
whether we're simply bowing with our arms down by our sides, um, we're, we're engaging our bodies um, throughout worship. Uh, the, the different things that we have liturgically are uh, telling a story in a holistic way. Um, so let's go back to the diaconate. Um, a deacon in worship um, takes the go- reads the gospel by taking the gospel out to the people, into the people, being that bridge, um, the gospel out into the world. But as that is done, it is a physical reminder that we as the people are, of God are t- called to take the gospel out to the world. So we experience it in this microcosm in our worship to teach us and point to um, our responsibility to take the gospel out to the world. When the deacon sets the table for worship, uh, the deacon, in a physical way, is preparing um, the table in a way that is inviting and saying, people of God, you are welcome to come to the table. And that's a very diaconal thing, and so that's why the deacon does that. I mean, then at the end of worship, when the deacon does the dismissal, um, and the, the deacon is the one that, that lives in that middle ground between um, the church and the world. The deacon saying, okay, people of God, we've experienced encouragement, feeding the word of God, prayer, fellowship. Now we are to take that out into the world. Um, just even the deacon doing that is symbolic of the order of deacon, but also who we are to be as the people of God. So I... That might be somewhat a little bit confusing, but um, but how we're very intentional in in how we are the church, um, and I just have found that to be so rich in my own experience in the Anglican Church. But it's also how we formed by the Book of Common Prayer, the daily office. That's a holistic way that we come and and uh, before the Lord, and, and we are steeped in Scripture, and we are um, praying either individually or as families or as small groups. And as we are uh, uh, charting the day, morning, noonday, evening, and then at night, Compline, um, a very holistic way. We are not compartmentalizing our Christian lives. We are saying we are Christians who live in the world, and this is um, how we get to do it as Anglicans. So I would say the holistic way that we go about being um, is what it means for me to be Anglican. Well, my experience has been far more limited than yours, but I have to say I, I, it rings true. I agree. Thank you for that. And Deacon Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.